Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Linda Noble Holzlein. Dr. Holzlein is widely recognized for her expertise in regenerative therapies and rehabilitation. She is a professor of neurological surgery at the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Holzlein joins us by telephone. I'd like to say welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Well, thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be able to participate. One of your interests is to study how the modulation of inflammation may promote central nervous system recovery after injury. Can you tell us about that aspect of your work? So we've been studying a family of proteases that are called matrix metalloproteinases, and their involvement in spinal cord injury and in reparative uh, wound healing processes. It's a very large family, so we have focused primarily on one member of that family that's called MMP9. This is an interesting protease that is uh, dramatically upregulated in the acutely injured cord, and it continues on at low levels during wound healing. And we know this from our animal rodent models of spinal cord injury. Now if we study mice that are genetically mutant in MMP9, that is they don't express that protease, we find that these animals show a remarkable recovery after spinal cord injury, neurological recovery. So we also can take that one step further and look at MMP inhibitors given at a time when MMP9 is maximally expressed, and we show that that pharmacologic strategy likewise improves long-term neurologic recovery after spinal cord injury. So we're very excited about these findings, and we have gone on to try to understand what MMP9 is doing in the acutely injured cord, where it is markedly upregulated. And we've learned that one of the key sources of MMP9 relates to neutrophils, these leukocytes that infiltrate into the acutely injured cord. These neutrophils express MMP9, and when they become activated, they can use that to not only cross the blood spinal cord barrier by cleaving substrates that are associated with the integrity of the barrier, some tight junctional complexes. They convey MMP9 into the injured cord, and in this activated state, they release this protease. Now, MMP9, when it's elevated, when there's this imbalance of MMP9, the end result is you may get secondary demyelination, since myelin basic protein, a major constituent of myelin, is a substrate for MMP9, and they may actually support a very extended period pro-inflammatory response. And this is because MMP9 and other MMPs are important in activating certain factors that stimulate inflammation by converting proforms to active forms of inflammatory molecules. So the example for that is TNF-alpha, which is made in a, initially in an inactive form, and MMPs actually uh, cleave a portion of that molecule to make them activated. So this MMP9, as well as other members of the family that are acutely elevated in spinal cord injury, not only disturb the barrier, may promote early demyelination. We have data that support that. But they also may directly or indirectly cause uh, cell death by cleaving the extracellular matrix and preventing cells to interact with the extracellular matrix. It's that interaction that maintains viability. They may also process cell death molecules, which leads to a form of death called apoptosis. The end result is by 
blocking this early rise of MMP9 in the injured spinal cord, mostly contributed by these white cells, the neutrophils, we see this improvement in long-term recovery. So we, by virtue of blocking MMP9, either pharmacologically or in these genetically modified mice, we have a scenario where there is reduced MMP9 or absence of it and reduced oxidative stress. And those are probably the two key components that contribute to the improvement we see in long-term neurologic recovery in these rodent models of spinal cord injury. I appreciate that overview and introduction. For many of your peers and colleagues, your comments would be a very nice synopsis of your work. As I think about the listeners of this podcast, they vary all over the spectrum in terms of their scientific background. Can you just take a moment for some of the lay audience that listens to this podcast and do a brief synopsis in terms of MMP9s, demyelinization, and so forth? I guess probably I should take a few steps back and tell the audience a little bit about spinal cord injury. The neurologic deficits that result from spinal cord injury are not solely attributed to the mechanical damage that causes shearing of structures within that system. It's what happens after the injury itself, that primary insult. And it's these, we call them secondary pathogenic events. It's almost as if the cord undergoes a series of processes that causes autolysis or cell death. The question is, why does the spinal cord do that? But importantly, it's these secondary events that contribute to the long-term neurologic deficits that we see in the spinal cord injured patient. Now, that's kind of a good news, bad news story. The bad news story is it raises a question as to why the spinal cord responds to an insult by initiating a series of events that causes additional tissue damage. But the good news is that some of these events are somewhat delayed in onset. And we have the opportunity to potentially intervene by, for example, pharmacologic interventions. So one of what we call targets, that is something that can contribute to this secondary damage, is a protein a molecule called MMP9. That molecule is increased in response to spinal cord injury. And it causes damage to the tissue that was impact initially after the spinal cord injury. And that damage can progress over time. And it erodes away parts of the spinal cord that are very important for functionality. So as the size of the damage in the cord increases, it encroaches upon a part of the cord called the white matter, which is where all these fiber tracts run between the brain and the spinal cord and within various parts of the spinal cord. So by influencing the integrity of the white matter by causing it to break down, we lose functionality. And this protease seems to be involved in damage to these long descending fiber tracts. There's merit in trying to target this particular protein and prevent it from acting after spinal cord injury. Now, from a clinical perspective, it's important to identify all factors that contribute to early tissue damage or to identify the key factors. And we think MMP9 is a key factor. So the rodent studies are one direction that we have been moving in defining how this protease interacts in the injured cord. But let me take it beyond that and say that there is a group of dogs that sustain naturally occurring spinal cord injuries. 
these are dogs that more than often are like dachshunds, but other dogs can have the same problem, where part of their vertebral column, they have a rupture of their disc, and that rupture can be so forceful that it can cause damage to the underlying spinal cord. And the dogs present with paralysis in their hind limbs because the injury typically occurs to a certain part of the cord that controls hind limb function. These dogs that I'm aware of are actually people's pets, and the owners of these pets bring the dogs to veterinary clinics to seek assistance for their dogs that have presented with this sudden onset uh, hind limb paralysis. So we have an ongoing collaboration with an academic veterinarian at Texas A&M who studies these dogs, and our objective is to try to improve the outcome in these animals. So we are running a clinical trial in these dogs to determine whether the same drug that has worked in our mouse models of spinal cord injury will improve outcome in these dogs. We see this as a win-win situation because if we're correct, if our hypothesis is correct that this particular protease is a key determinant of recovery, then this drug that we have been working with should improve the outcome in these dogs. So we don't know the, out- the, the results of that study yet. It's still ongoing. But we are cautiously optimistic that this inhibitor may be beneficial to these dogs. And I call it a win-win because we will hopefully improve the quality of life of these dogs. And at the same time, we will have shown that the drug that we have studied in a rodent model of spinal cord injury likewise is seen in an injury which is naturally occurring, which is what you see in the human clinical scenario. So we're very excited about taking this new direction to really confirm the efficacy of this drug. This is very exciting, and thank you for sharing. You have mentioned inflammation, and as I understand from you and your colleagues, inflammation is not necessarily bad. So perhaps you could respond to that and also share some insights from your perspective on how your findings relate to cellular therapies and particularly in terms of treating spinal cord injuries and perhaps TBI. It has properties that are considered beneficial and properties that are considered detrimental. And I'll talk about it in the setting of the nervous system, which I'm most familiar with. So how inflammation can affect the nervous system is more often context-dependent. Like everything else, there are pros and cons to these cells that uh, are part of this inflammatory response that happens, for example, after traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury. From one of the beneficial sides of inflammation, we know that some of these inflammatory cells are important for cleaning up debris. So when you have, for example, a traumatic spinal cord injury, cells die, and you need to have other cells that step into position and clean up these dead cells. And macrophages, which are components of the inflammatory system, they're positioned to serve as these cells that clean up the cellular debris. They can also make factors that are favorable to wound healing. Now, the challenge here is, I said, it's kind of context-dependent. In the acutely injured brain or the acutely injured spinal cord, I think most studies would say, using animal models, that inflammation can be very damaging. And that's because it's very over-exuberant, and these inflammatory cells have features that they release factors that are damaging to cells, such as factors that cause, we call it oxidative stress, but these are factors that cause cells that have normally survived the insult. It causes them to die. 
So as we think about inflammatory cells, we have to think about the context in which they're operating, whether it's in an acutely injury setting or whether it's during wound healing when the nervous system is trying to repair itself. And like the human population, there are all different kinds of inflammatory cells, and so their functionality may be very different. The cells that are involved in the acutely injured cord include these neutrophils that I have spoken about. These are white blood cells. They are powerhouses. They normally come in to rid the spinal cord of bacteria that could be potentially damaging, but they're overzealous and they produce too many things that in the nervous system, which is a very controlled environment, it's not prepared to respond to what these leukocytes can do and what they release. So the end result is those particular leukocytes can be very damaging to the spinal cord. Now, let me flip the story and say that even with neutrophils, as much as we think that they're damaging, we also acknowledge a rare activity of these neutrophils, and that is they convey a protein that's called a vascular endothelial growth factor. This is a molecule that they can release that stimulates the formation of new blood vessels, which is key to wound healing in brain and spinal cord injury. So as much as we recognize that these activated neutrophils can be damaging to the cord, they also produce some of these factors that may stimulate favorable wound healing processes. So I think it explains why when you think about inflammation that people describe it both as having beneficial and detrimental effects. It's simply context-dependent. Relative to these points, I know there is increasing evidence in terms of regenerative therapies, whether it be tissue engineering or cell-based therapies, that exercise is an important component in terms of modulating inflammation. Can you share how your research is contributing to rehabilitation protocols for spinal cord injury and TBI? We know that exercise in combination with, for example, other strategies to reduce inflammation may enhance uh, neurologic recovery. However, we're still working out the paradigms that would optimize exercise-mediated recovery function. We need to fully evaluate how reduced inflammation in combination with exercise may influence the optimal time for starting an exercise paradigm, the type of training that you have, and the intensity of training that you may have. For example, if you don't modulate inflammation, training too early may be detrimental. We know that from studies. While starting too late may be ineffective. One of the interesting aspects of exercise and uh, inflammation comes from work from my colleagues, a group from Ohio led by Michelle Basso. What they have shown is that inflammation in the injured spinal cord is just not limited to where that damage is, but actually it extends along the cord. The cord is a very long structure. And if you look at multiple segments down in the lumbar cord, which is an area that controls function of your limbs, we find, uh, well, this group has found that there's inflammation within that area. We have collaborated with this group on trying to better understand what inflammation is doing there, and in collaboration with this group from Ohio State, what we found is that this very matrix metalloproteinase that we've been studying in the injured cord at the site of injury actually is elevated in these remote sites that are very distal from the site of injury. So, interestingly, that elevation in this protease is associated with the 
activation of certain kinds of cells within this remote area that further promote inflammation. So if you study mice that are genetically mutant for MMP9, what you find is, and you apply exercise, what you find is that neither training nor these mice that are mutant in MMP9 are associated with any kind of neurological recovery. Now, if you pair them up and look at training and mice that are mutant for MMP9, and you give that particular type of exercise, this treadmill training, early after injury, within the first week or so, you will see an improvement in long-term neurological recovery. However, if you do the same type of study, but you start the exercise regimen about a month later, and for the same duration of time, you will not see that type of recovery. So what it suggests is that by you know, attenuating these remote mechanisms of inflammation, in part attributed to this elevation of MMP9, this early form of treadmill training can probably support, we believe, endogenous spinal plasticity that can promote locomotor recovery. So some kind of changes in the circuitry down in the lower part of the cord that allows these animals to show some recovery of hind limb function. Thank you. Regenerative medicine strategies continue to mature and are reaching the clinic with increasing frequency. Do you have any considerations relative to comorbidities or drug-based interventions that are typical for patients for whom these interventions are typically targeted? I think this is a great question, and, and I would say that the field of ischemia has taken the lead on issues of core uh, comorbidity. I mean, this, the field that studies brain ischemia has really attempted to address comorbidities that are commonly recognized in stroke patients and really lead the field in terms of demonstrating or supporting the inclusion of those, quote, comorbidities in preclinical investigations. That mean, means investigations in animal models. And I think the most pertinent aspects are that strokes occur in a mixed-gender age population and in patients that may have a history, for example, commonly of hypertension or diabetes, which is oftentimes controlled by pharmaceuticals. And moreover, these stroke patients may receive for example, anticoagulants or statins. So these points are important when considering how to design the most correct animal model for drug development. In spinal cord injury or traumatic brain injury, the ability to recognize and institute these kinds of comorbidities you know, are not uh, as forthcoming as they have been in the field of ischemia. But one, I think, good example is that of age. And so there is a growing incidence of spinal cord injury among older individuals. And in fact, the percentage of patients that are, say, older than 60 years of age at the time of injury has increased from about 4% to about 11% since 2000. And the average age that an individual may sustain a spinal cord injury has changed from about 29 years of age, and I would say the 1970s, to about 41 years of age currently. So we need to consider how age interacts with injury in the animal models. And there is some indication that age may adversely affect the recovery status when you're modeling spinal cord injury in the aged animal. In the setting of traumatic brain injury, there have been a number of studies that have looked at the aged brain and how it responds to trauma, but I'd like to take the opposite 
end of the spectrum and say that there are some of us who are very interested in how age is a determinant of recovery when the brain hasn't fully developed. So the rationale for that is that head injury in children is the leading cause of death and disability, and yet we don't have any good pharmacologic treatments for the brain-injured child, something that would be specifically tailored to the unique properties of a developing brain, which are very different than the adult brain. So we know from our work that in the immature brain, it's still developing, but we would say the antioxidant potential hasn't reached its maximum. That means the ability of the brain to develop mechanisms that would defend it against an insult are not there yet in the brain, it will be achieved at a much later age. So when, for example, a child sustains a head injury, they are more vulnerable because they don't have the biochemical systems intact that would prevent some degree of secondary damage. And in fact, if you look at brain injuries in the developing nervous system versus the adult, what you'll find is what really makes the young animal stand out is that if their deficits may evolve over time as the brain matures. So in an animal model, we refer to this as sort of growing into cognitive deficits. So they may not have cognitive deficits to begin with, but as the brain matures, these become very visible. And you see this in children. Children develop, for example, social deficits, and this occurs at sort of later ages when they begin to interact with other children. It becomes clear that they're having problems in relating to other children of about the same age. Similarly, in the animal models, we see that they too have a problem in developing appropriate social interactions with other animals at the same age as they get older. You can imagine how devastating this is for children in a classroom setting where their ability to get along with other children is dependent upon acquiring appropriate social skills. And these are simply very challenging for the brain-injured child. I understand that you had a key role in the workshop that is addressing improvements in the quality of clinical and preclinical research. Can you tell us about this particular workshop? That was the NINDS workshop that was held last year, 2012, in Washington, D.C., and it came about because of the concern about how preclinical and clinical trials were being designed. And some of the data that was presented at that meeting was really intriguing. If you look at publications and you look at what's called the measured effect, that measured effect means improvement. And investigators imported greater improvement in studies in which there was no randomization. In other words, there was some potential bias as to how you would group the subjects together. Similarly, if investigators were not blinded to the measurements they took, there was also a greater measured effect of improvement. So you think about this, and what it says is something I think we've all realized is important, and that is in either preclinical or clinical designs, you need to have two key features that are essential for that design, and that is being blinded to the experimental condition, in other words, not knowing who's being treated with what, and to randomize, for example, if you're doing a drug study, who is being given the drug and who's been given the control for that drug. 
the group sizes are often quite low in many of the preclinical studies. And so NIH recognized that when you underpower a study, you may come up with results that cannot be replicated because there's just not enough subjects to make that study that can be replicated by others. Another point is that as scientists and clinicians, we often fail to publish negative or neutral data. This is important because what it then does is it potentially gives an overestimation of the efficacy of a, of a drug because only the positive data are being reported. The end result of this workshop was to develop a series of recommendations for how to do preclinical design involving randomization and blinding, providing good statistical rationale for how you would determine group sizes so it makes statistical sense, and reporting negative or neutral data so that there is greater transparency of the work that's being done in that particular area. This workshop also led to a change in how study sections review grants. There are instructions for reviewers to look at preclinical design and make sure that some of these basic elements are incorporated into that experimental design. This is an interesting synopsis and is fairly significant to those in the scientific community. This topic also makes a good segue to the next topic that I wanted to explore with you. I know at the University of California, San Francisco, through the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science, there's a partnership that's been formed with the McGowan Institute and several other organizations, including the UPMC Rehabilitation Institute, the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh, and the Palo Alto VA Center of Excellence to organize the third annual symposium on regenerative rehabilitation. And for this symposium, there is a new venue. I understand the symposium will be held in San Francisco, and the dates are April 10 and 11, 2014. Can you please tell us about this meeting and why you and your colleagues in San Francisco have decided to participate in this particular event? We are very excited about contributing to this meeting and having it here in the San Francisco Bay Area. We're excited about the merging of the fields of regenerative medicine and rehabilitation. We think this is long in coming, and we think that there is much that can be done to further understand the interactions between these two specialties. I think the goals of each of these broad areas are really the same, and that's to improve or achieve normal functioning of either injured or diseased tissues. And I'm excited about the fact that there's really substantial opportunity for synergism between these fields. The key here, though, is that the fields, they must be able to talk to one another to make this more transparent. And that's what this meeting is all about. Those in the field of regenerative medicine must develop, I think, a greater awareness of the wide possibilities in supporting recovery through activity-based restoration of function, which is what rehabilitation specialists are keen at doing and are experts in. Conversely, the rehabilitation specialists must be really cognitive of the cutting-edge medical advances of regenerative medicine at the level of the clinician and at the level of the scientists who are developing the protocols that may ultimately be used to treat a human disorder or disease. So this meeting represents opportunity, an opportunity for advancement of medicine through the merging of these two, I think, very important fields that have 
much to offer and great opportunity for synergism. So I was going to call it a partnership, but merging is probably better. When you bring scientists and physicians and clinicians into an arena where these sorts of topics are discussed, it's an important step in improving communication between the two groups. And I think it's a potential catalyst for the developing, I agree, in, uh, in terms of calling it a partnership. It should be a partnership. Based on the great success for the first two symposiums, and considering the partners for the third symposium, I expect this event will be another overwhelming success. For our listeners, we will put on the podcast website the registration information link for the symposium. We will also put on the podcast website a link to Dr. Noble Holstein's website if the listeners want to further explore her pioneering work. I would like to thank Dr. Linda Noble Holstein for joining us today by telephone and sharing her progress on this pioneering and amazing research area. As noted from this discussion, I think her findings and those of her colleagues will have a significant impact of moving forward the emerging partnership between regenerative medicine and rehabilitation science. As we conclude this podcast, I would like to thank our listeners for joining us. I would like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine for sponsoring this podcast series, and we welcome suggestions. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Thank you.